Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 247. With that number, uh, we're going to give a shout out to the 247th victory in U.S. Women's National Team history. Since the U.S. Women are soon to play their opening game of the Women's World Cup, I'm thinking this is a good number uh, to recognize the opening game of the 2004 Olympic tournament in Greece. That was the 247th victory for the team in their, you know, history going back to 1985. The U.S. women defeated the host 3-0 with goals from Shannon Box, Abby Wambach, and Mia Hamm. They went on to win the gold medal that year, defeating Brazil 2-1 in the final in extra time. All right, two chats today. First, with Brenda Elsie and Josh Nadel, authors of Football Era. It's an amazing book about uh, history of women's soccer in Latin America with a lot of focus on Brazil and, and Mexico. Brenda is one of the hosts of the Burn It All Down podcast, and Josh wrote Football, Why Soccer, Mar- Why Soccer Matters in Latin America a few years back. I highly recommend reading this book. And of course, there are several other Woso books that just came out. So check out my recommended reading list on keepernotes.com. And just a warning that uh, there is a little bit of explicit language in this chat, but it's totally worth it. And then I talked with Dan Laletta of Equalizer Soccer to take a look at the 2019 NWSL season that is now one-third of it in the books. And of course, the two of us get a bit cranky about the lack of announcement about the NWSL final and other things. You may wonder why I often ask Dan to talk NWSL with me. It's mostly because he's one of the few people who's been covering women's soccer since the WSA days, and he's the only person who has attended every single final in American women's pro soccer history. That is 12 and counting. All right, two great chats. Hope you enjoy them both. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Josh Nadel and Brenda Elsie. And I hope I'm saying both names correctly, but they're co-authors of a new book that's out called Football Era, the His- a History of Women and Sports in Latin America. And Brenda, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Um, I want to know how you ended up writing about women's sports and women's soccer and how you ended up meeting Josh. And then he can refute the story later when, when I ask Josh. <laughs> so I actually started writing about men's soccer in Latin America. And so my first book was on politics and soccer clubs in Chile. And just during the process of writing it as a feminist scholar and and person, I felt that I hadn't done a good enough job on exploring the history of the women's game. I had scant evidence. I knew that in Chile, women hadn't been playing since 1910. I knew there was a long history there that was at least 100 years old. Josh's book came out a couple years after, and we just started, you know, seeing each other here and there during the rounds of conferences or whatever, because we're both historians. And it was like, I'm writing a book on women's soccer. And he's like, I'm writing a book on women's soccer. And it's like, hey, you're really smart. I would probably write a better book with you. And (laughs) that's that's it. I love that. So, so Josh, can you corroborate that evidence? I I will completely corroborate that evidence. <laughs> I will add to it though that that we met at we we met in person at a conference at 
this phenomenal conference that Brenda uh, co-organized that brought together hundreds of papers about uh, or over 100 papers about whip, about soccer generally around the world. Um, and there were only three papers that dealt with women in any capacity at all. Um, and so that was sort of when we first were like, huh. That's really fascinating. We're both working on Latin America. Like, what can we do together? And you saw that niche and you decided to fill it. Um, So tell me about, Josh, tell me about getting started on this book. I mean, well, first tell me a little bit about the previous book, which I really enjoyed, especially, of course, the chapter on women's soccer um, and how that led you to want to do this book. Sure. I mean, as as Brenda said, you know, my first book was on basically on men's soccer um, about uh, sort of around Latin America, but there was one chapter where I focused on women's soccer and there were all these sort of, you know, amazing tidbits of history, you know, from Brazil, Mexico, Costa Rica, that sort of really piqued my interest. And, and, you know, as with Brenda, not only sort of intellectual interest, but also sort of political interest as a feminist, you know, like why are these histories not being told? How can we deepen, deepen this historical sort of narrative about women's football? How can we actually help to create um, the history because it's been ignored for so long? How, how do we uncover those threads, which I think also helps women footballers in Latin America today um, in, in sort of agitating for more recognition um, they can point to this longer history. And I think that's one of the goals that both Brenda and I had in writing this. And Brenda, how do you get started on a book like this? Um, because you're encompassing, you know, Mexico soccer history, Brazil soccer history, Chile, a, a lot of other angles. How do you narrow it down to what you want to cover? And then how do you actually, you know, is that a lot of travel with the, with covering all that? Yeah, there there was considerable travel. Again, it made it a lot easier to divide it up. Basically, I didn't think we were going to do two chapters on Brazil. Neither of us are Brazilianists. So in the historical field, <laughs> it, it's out of our wheelhouse. We knew there was at least a, a really important story to tell about the ban on women's soccer that happened between 1941 and 1981. And it was not only women's soccer, but also boxing, polo, etc. But we were really interested in that part. And I went down to Sao Paulo right when we first started researching, and we should shout out the support of both Hofstra for that conference and um, University of Texas Press that helped us do that travel. So I got to Sao Paulo, to Brazil, and (laughs) I walked into the Museum of Soccer, the Museo de Futebol, and basically they had just done an exhibit, their first exhibition on women's soccer. And I met the archivist and she said, would you like a pen drive with the 10,000 documents that we used to put together this exhibition (laughs) that no one is interested in? And I was, I almost, I didn't cry or kissed her. I don't know. Her name's Ida Bonfim. She exists as an angel of the archive somewhere. Um, So you you basically ran into the Jen Cooper of Brazilian soccer that said, here, here's my spreadsheet. Here's all my data. Use it for use it for the better good. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Exactly. Totally. And I was amazing. It was. And there was so much there. And it took us months and months to read through it all because I'm really slow in Portuguese. So I was like, I was struggling, but it was so good. It was just fascinating. And it uncovered all of these networks of solidarity that had existed among women 
even during the ban. So even when they weren't supposed to play, we found all of this evidence like in provincial Brazil of like thousands of people at games and regular, you know, games being played and covered. And it was super exciting. And that I think was my part. And then Josh also did uh, more traveling to University of Texas libraries and Mexico City. So, right. so Josh, doing that kind of travel and that kind of research, how, I mean, how fluent do you really need to be in all in several different languages? Um, well, I mean, fortunately, I'm I'm more or less fluent in Spanish, particularly when it comes to reading. Um, uh-huh. As with Brenda. Portuguese is uh, is a bit of a struggle for me. I like to sort of think if if I read English at sort of pace at you know at one, I read uh, you know I read Spanish like a little bit slower than that, and Portuguese is like I read two or three times as slow as I read English. But but you sort of struggle through, um, and and yeah, I mean you have to know you have to be able to to, to figure out the languages basically. Um, and Spanish again, not not that difficult. But when it came to Portuguese, definitely slowed some things down. And we had even some things. There were some um, intellectuals who were writing about women's soccer in Latin America who were writing in French, and that that's an even another level of of sort of slowness for me. Um, but but again, we work through, and and we have friends who help out with sort of specific phrases that we don't understand we can always sort of bounce it off of one of our colleagues in in Portuguese or Spanish. That's what I would wonder is um, when you're using idioms, especially strange soccer slang, like how does that, how does that translate? Because the the research I've done for the world cup for, for Fox, and sometimes I'm Googling in foreign languages and just throwing something back into Google translate. And you get some very strange phrases where I'm like, Oh God, I was like, okay, Google doesn't know what I'm talking about because I'm talking (laughs) soccer. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And working, researching in Mexico city. I mean, were you able to talk to any of the Mexican clubs there, the, the football clubs? I mean, would they have any of their own, research or, so the, or information? They had very little, uh, particularly dating back to, you know, we were really looking for stuff around the, the 60s and 70s. So they had very little. Um, but I was able to, to talk to a couple of the, the players from that era. Um, uh-huh. sort of, uh, Elvira Aresen, who was the, the goalie at the time, uh, and a couple other players from the 1970-71 and then sort of the the 75 to let's say 81 period. And then some of the players who came after. So there, there are players there. And I also spoke with, um, with the Mexican football federation. Um, so the head of the amateur division um, and one of the women who's in, in charge really of, of getting the, the Liga MX Femenil off the ground. So you had, you had a kind of a whole range uh, of time periods represented and, you know, what, what, kind of tidbits stood out to you, maybe something you learned that you were completely unaware of. I mean, like, again, when I read your first first book and, and hadn't realized that there had actually been an organized Women's World Cup, per se, in Mexico in, in the early 70s, it just wasn't a FIFA event. You know, was, was there any other information like that that you found? I was like, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, what was most fascinating about particularly talking to the, the the players themselves from the era is how they came to find women's 
soccer, right? Um, I mean, some were brought in by friends. Uh, actually, Vera Arison tells this great story of like being promised um, basically a, a, a barbecue, right? Like tacos al pastor um, or barbacoa. I can't remember which one it was, but basically being offered like, hey, let's come to this soccer game that I'm playing in and watch me play. And then we'll get, you know, we'll get some food afterwards. And actually it was all just a ploy to get her to go um, because she was super fast. She had run for Mexico during the, in, she'd been a track star for Mexico and, and, and competed for Mexico in like the Latin American Caribbean games um, or Central American and Caribbean games, excuse me. And so it was just like, sort of this funny ploy to get her to play. Right. Um, <laughs> then there's uh, like another sort of, the, the the generational support that players had, I think, is one of the things that I found to be really sort of fascinating. So Aracen told of how they would travel around the country. They were sort of in training almost all the time between 1970 and 71. They would be at school or at their jobs or, uh, you know, doing their sort of going through their daily life. Um, and then they would practice you know, at five in the morning or six at night. Uh, but then on weekends, they were sort of barnstorming around Mexico, um, taking women's soccer to rural areas, to other states, and also sort of using that as a way to um, to recruit for, for this sort of the nascent national team. Um, and so that was fascinating to me. Um, and seeing the growth of the sport as a result of this Women's World Cup um, that happened in 1971, you know, which was televised all over the country. Um, but, you know, a, a player from the, from the next generation um, said that she grew up in Durango and in like 19, like listened to the games on, on radio or watched them on TV. And then by like 1975, there were like 200 teams in Durango. Um, so as a result of sort of the, the, the development of the Women's World Cup. And even after the sort of rapid decline in, in 71 and 72, there was still this sort of, you know, development around Mexico. Um, and that to me was really fascinating that, that, that the sport sort of continued, even if it was a little bit uh, under the surface. That's amazing. And, and Brenda, I mean, for you, uh, and I'm going to throw Brazil questions at you since you got to travel all the way to Brazil. <laughs> Um, you know, what were some of the surprising things that, that you found? Well, we first found that women's soccer had flourished in the circuses. And um, so there would be these traveling circuses that would go around Brazil in the 1920s. And they weren't circuses necessarily like Ha Ha, Shriner, Dude Hat circuses. You know, what I'm about. <laughs> like they didn't have like elephants and stuff. Um, but they were, they were, Brazil's a huge country, you know, it's the size of the U S you know, without Alaska. So, um, these circuses would go and perform plays and they would go all over. And they also like every single week had a women's football match, a soccer match. And we, we didn't know what to make of that at first. That's actually how jujitsu started in Brazil as well. So, um, so yeah, basically the, the players in the circus would uh, be playing soccer and they would recruit kind of local people and they would reenact a rivalry, like the local, whatever the local rivalry was. 
in that particular town or region. So it was that was that was super interesting for us. Also, the fact that women's soccer had gotten so popular by, you know, 1940, 41, that women inaugurated Estadio Pacambu, which is the main municipal stadium in Sao Paulo. So there mm-hmm. was a women's football match at that. And actually the president, Getulio Vargas, attended that. And he was the one that oversaw the ban the following year. So the number of leagues, the number of teams, the fact that the ban was in place because it was popular and not because no one cared, which was something that many people had told us when we started studying that, well, you know, it probably wasn't a big deal, this ban, because there weren't that many people playing in the late 1930s, early 1940s anyway. And au contraire, we found that, (laughs) you know, it it was a whole big, huge network. I mean, to the extent that certain journalists estimated there were like a thousand and one games a day of women's soccer in 1940. So we were really surprised by all that. We were really surprised by the abundant evidence that they continued to play and also about the really close relationship in Brazil that emerged in the 1970s between the feminist movement and soccer players, uh, particularly around, you know, getting rid of this law. And so it became a kind of flashpoint at that moment. And um, besides that, just, just a little anecdote, when we interviewed, you know, Sissy, uh-huh. the golden boot winner of 99 for the book, and we, we were asking her about the ban and how she could imagine, because she was born under the ban, and as was Formiga, Formiga will be the last player on Brazil, presumably, that was born during the ban. And um, she was like, <laughs> she was like, I was like, who cares? You know, I'm out here in Bahia. No one's going to stop me from playing. <laughs> you know, I heard about this band, but man, uh, it's really mine. Right, Josh? I mean, wouldn't you say yeah. like, she was sort of like, I don't know. And Josh asked her at one point a really poignant question and said, how is it that you could imagine representing a national team that hadn't existed before? You know, you just dreamed that you were going to represent Brazil in in there wasn't a national team. There was no, it was illegal. And right. she, was like, she was just like, I don't know. Like, that's just me. Like, that's just, that's just what I was doing. And it was like, we wanted, I don't know what, how we expected her to answer that question, but it never yeah. ceases to touch some part of my soul. Right. Yeah. And, totally. and reading, reading all about the ban, it, it made me think, you know, well, how much progress Brazil has made since that was ended. But at the same time, we've seen the, the Brazilian women's national team stagnate, um, especially like that growth in the 90s where, you know, they make it to the third place match in the 99 Women's World Cup. You know, they do well in the Olympics, making it to the, the final in both 2004, 2008, making it to the World Cup final in 2007. And Still, there's so little investment in the team. They rarely play outside of qualifying matches. Uh, you know, they they don't seem to get regular friendlies or you know the residency that we've seen from from other national teams. Um, so, what I don't know what has to happen next. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. That's a good answer. 
so terrible. I mean, nine straight losses going into the Women's World Cup and no one's panicking and people are still going to work in Brazil, which just wouldn't be the case if it was the men's team. The fact that Bajau, the head coach, is there and seems unable to answer any questions about how he'll redirect the team. The fact that at the press conference announcing the convocation and who is getting called up, he was asked about team morale and strategy. And he said, well, women are just harder to calm down in a locker room. <laughs> I just, I don't, yeah. I don't even, I, yeah. I don't want to swear on your podcast. Oh, okay. But it's just, it's, just, it's mm. We'll have we'll have an unadulterated version later for our you know right. our listeners over a certain age. Okay, okay, then the fuck like seriously? Like you're like it's May 16th. It is less than a month away, and you've had this horrible losing streak. And ha- I just pictured myself as one of those players just shaking my head, like that is the best you got. And, you know, they fired someone I really consider a good coach, Emily Lima, and replaced him with this guy again. This is his second go-round, and he was a mediocre men's coach. And and we've seen, like, no no development, no kind of group of new players getting tested out. It seems like it's the same pool over and over. And I don't mean that, obviously, as disrespect to to Marta or or for me or any of the senior players, but there's, like, when they retire, who – who takes their place? Well, I think there's Andersinha. I think there's Gaysa. I think I think there are a crop, but they're no, not there's, being developed. Yeah, right, right. I don't know what you think, Josh, but no, I I, I agree. I mean, I think you know there, there's. I mean, in goal, relatively young, Aline, right? You've got Ludmila coming up, but I I do think that there's there's a major problem. There's historically been a major problem, right? For a long time, Brazil was able to just throw the best women on the field and all of the other programs were sort of, you know, all over the world were essentially the same, not putting any resources in. But as soon as all other, you know, like as soon as European nations started putting in resources, right, right, Brazil, Brazil didn't, right, and so that's an, an Asian team started putting in resources, and and Brazil didn't. They just figured we can continue to do the same thing, um, which is what you know what they've continued to do, uh, as as both you and Brenda have pointed out, right? They're they're just not putting any resources or thought or planning into the team, um, you know. And, and the Emily Lima case is really infuriating, right? She she actually was bringing in new players. She was experimenting with lineups and she lost five straight games and she got fired. Um, it's five straight friendlies, no less, right. right? Without right. any major tournament coming up. Um, so, you know, and she was fired for that. But, but what she was doing was bringing in new players and experimenting with different different positions and different people in different places. Um, the things that you need to sort of have some form of long-term plan. Uh, and and she was let go. And again, as Brenda points out, Vidal has lost nine in a row in the run-up to the World Cup, and nobody in Brazil seems to care. Uh, and, and nobody in the Federation, anyway, seems to care. Uh, well, and, and, and then that I'm, is a major problem. And then for, for Mexico, I feel like it's a different storyline, but tell me, you know, if you feel differently, where we saw very little in investment um, for a long time in what I'd say, let's, let's say the modern era being 1990 and, and, and afterwards. 
and 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 relying on uh, Mexican Americans to kind of get the team into the '99 World Cup and stuff like that. Um, but it seems like with the movement to require all Division One men's teams to have a women's team starting League of Mex Femenil, making it an under twenty three league, starting U seventeen and other youth. Uh, programs, leagues, you know, th- throughout the country, they are thinking long-term, you know, they are activating their existing football infrastructure uh, to benefit the women. Um, you know, we've seen the amazing attendance at uh, some of their League of Mex finals, um, you know, more of those games getting on TV. It's got a way to go, obviously, but it seems like that they have a plan. Now, I know some listeners may be like, hey, but Mexico didn't make the Women's World Cup. But I feel like that's that's the previous generation. And there's this next generation that's that's coming up that Mexico has been focusing on. Uh, Josh, I, I what think, do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, I would I would totally agree. I think for a long time, Mexico didn't really, they, they showed sort of a similar disinterest to Brazil, right? I mean, Leo Cuero was the coach forever uh, with, an, with an incredibly bad record, um, and he was just sort of left to coach. Right. Um, though, you know, uh, so, I mean, I think that that's a, that was sort of signs of disinterest, but the, the formation of the Amakis Femenil, I think, is a, a major step in the right direction and sort of trying to get a hold of all of the, the leagues, um, because there had been literally hundreds of sort of independent girls soccer leagues uh, around Mexico. And so, you know, having the Federation try to, to bring those in um, to get some sort of uniformity in the youth system um, and then bring, bring young women up into Liga MX Femenil is sort of, is very much a long-term strategy that, that I think will bear fruit. I mean, even though this, the, the, the Mexican team that didn't qualify for this World Cup uh, was the older generation. It still came as something of a shock that they didn't qualify. Oh, true, um, you know, true. You know, they, were, they were head and shoulders. They should have been head and shoulders above Panama. Um, you know, well, whether, not, yeah, whether, not even not qualify, but not even get to the semis. Right. So they, right. they, didn't, they didn't even have the chance to go to the playoff game against uh, Argentina. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and who knows what would have happened against Argentina. Um, but, you know, I'd actually love to see a, as, as with the men's game, a, a cross confederation um, spot instead of, you know, I mean, I know it is cross confederation, but, you know, cross global spot um, in the way that Conabo plays against Oceana or something like that. So Argentina, oh, gotcha. so this is my own, this is my own sort of like, <laughs> I don't want Latin American teams playing against other Latin American teams because we need to gotcha. Latin American women's teams in the game. Sorry, that was a bit vague, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, um, I think that the future does bode well for the, the, the Mexican national team. Um, they too, though, have very little play outside of, you know, I mean, they get, I think there are more opportunities to play because they're close to the United States, close to Canada, but they don't do a ton of other friendlies um, or right. other tournaments. And that's really the way that, you know, that teams develop into, you know, let's say they take the next step, right? Because if it's just internal competition, there's only so far you can go. Um, So I think that that that's another step that Mexico needs to take in the future. And also I'm still, you know, they're still in the, 
in the world of the Quares since since Christopher Quare is now the head coach. Um, you know, <laughs> not sure. I'm, I don't want to like cast aspersions on him just because he's, you know, but he was in the program for a long time. This is there's a good deal of continuity in that program, um, and and while well, continuity is often a good thing, I'm not sure in the case in this case that it is. Right. It may just be sort of the devil that, you know, versus the devil that you don't almost like going back to Vidal after deciding that that Emily Lima wasn't going to cut it. You know? Where, whereas Monica Vergara, you know, taking the, the Mexico U-17s all the way to the World Cup final last December might have a good argument uh, for, you know, getting to be head yep. coach in the future. Yep. Well, Brenda, I'm going to wrap it up with, with you. I'm going to ask you um, for any last thoughts um, on the book, like why somebody just has to read this because I'm sure, I'm sure I can tell them to read it, but you know, you've probably got an interesting story. And also I want to know um, your predictions for the Latin American teams in the World Cup. <laughs> so you get uh, the high pressure questions. Okay. So why should everyone read this book? I mean, <laughs> I, that's, that's just, uh, that's so intimidating for, uh, okay. Okay. If I was your mom, people. If I okay. was your mom, why would you tell me to read this book? Mom, <laughs> you, have to, you have to think broader than U.S. soccer, mom. Um, yeah, I think I think in general there's like a really beautiful story of perseverance and solidarity among women. I think there's a way in which this book challenges a lot of snobbery from intellectuals and other cultural producers about sports. You know, sports being kind of a jock bro you know terrain of social life in these countries and i think along the way you can learn a lot about the history of these places too so it's like if you love soccer it's a window into learning about this whole history of women in the region well and and i and i love that you know you you said you have to think beyond the usa because i think here we see so much coverage of the U.S. women's national teamers fighting their their fight uh, for yeah. for better better pay and better rights, and I and I think reading a, a book like this puts it in in much greater perspective. So yeah. so, yeah. so I'm I'm gonna let you off the hook, Brenda. You don't have to answer the second question. I'm gonna throw that one back to oh, Josh. Oh man, that's the one I <laughs> okay. had. Okay, okay, no, no, no. okay. Well, then you'll both get to answer it. Okay, so Brenda, oh. you answer it first. Okay, I always do call it well. Impossible groups, just impossible groups. It's it's nail biting. I just want to make one point. I don't know that the Argentine and the Chilean teams have a shot to get out of group stages, but I really hope that their story gets told of the fact that they were unranked in 2015 and of their own blood, sweat, and tears crawled their way. You know what I mean? Like absolutely 100% effort off the pitch to create the bids, to to put pressure on the federations, to put pressure on the media. And so I just hope no matter what their performance is, it's going to indicate that they need more resources and not less. And I feel that way about Brazil too. Good answer. Okay, so now we'll send it to Josh so that he can really feel the pressure of having to answer the same question after you answer it. <laughs> well, I mean, Brenda took care of Conable, so I get CONCACAF, uh, Panama... <gasps> Mm-hmm. Panama's not in it. There, there are no Latin American oh, exactly. teams. 
<laughs> from CONCACAF. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, Jamaica is an interesting case, exactly, right? I would say <laughs> we'll take Caribbean. Um, okay. I don't even know what I was thinking there in Panama. Um, but, um, you know, Jamaica is this interesting case because because the reggae girls are a great story and they've got, you know, Sidella Marley. You know, for me, the the the, the Marley family money is great and the support is great, but it just exposes the failure of, of the Federation, right? Like the Federation should be taking that that right. charge, not not right. private money from inside. They shouldn't need to have an outside backer come in for the women's team. Do they have that for the men's team? No, the men's team has as much much, much as many resources as they want um, and as much support as they want, even though they're not nearly uh, reaching as high a level on the international stage. So I think, you know, it, 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 it so again, Jamaica is this, this compelling story Um at the same time, it's like, you know, it's another story of a need for institutional support and institutional resources rather than sort of, oh, look, the women who through their own, as Brenda sort of said, through their own blood, sweat and tears, make the sacrifice, make the connections, force federations into supporting them, you know, that shouldn't have to be the case, right? They, the, right. The support should be there from the Sell, selling so, their own selling their own t-shirts, doing whatever fundraisers exactly, they can, exactly. all that all that stuff. Yeah, the Marley right. Foundation story is great, and and she did the same thing in 2014, but right. it just it hides the fact that the real federation's not doing it. Well, exactly, exactly. I want to say you know thanks to both of you for taking the time to talk today and. You know, thanks again for for putting all your hard work, your blood, sweat, and tears um, into something like the book. Thank you so much. Don't forget to listen to Brenda's podcast, Burn It All Down. (laughs) Okay, Brenda, I'll give you two more seconds to uh, promo the podcast. I don't think she's there. Brenda. Brenda. It's still muted. Don't worry about it. I'll just cut it. I'll just cut it on the thing. <laughs> that was good. Oh, there she is. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, Brenda. Just no worries. over my mute. It, no worries. No, it, it was all good. It's it all is good. the other sport and feminist podcast you need. It covers as many women's sports and takes a feminist perspective on men's as well. I work with a lot of great people and we frequently shout out this podcast. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Dan LaLetta to talk, of course, NWSL. Dan, from Equalizer Soccer, we're a third of the way through the 2019 NWSL season. So where do things stand? What what has surprised you and and what has not surprised you about this season so far? Well, it's a great question. And thanks, as usual, for having me on. I think what has surprised me is how many different teams have put in really poor performances when you least expect it. I didn't expect. <laughs> and I was surprised I, I by that answer. Yeah, I didn't expect Utah to lay an egg against Washington the other night. Uh, I didn't expect North Carolina to go 17-1 and six again, but I didn't expect them to play as poorly 
as they have on a couple of different occasions. Um, I didn't expect Orlando to be quite this poor. Probably didn't expect Sky Blue to be quite this poor either, though I would have probably gone with them being the two weakest teams in the league. And then you have the Red Stars. It looked like when the World Cup absences hit that the Red Stars were still in pretty good shape. And they have lost two pretty brutal games since then, not scoring and conceding five. So I don't know if Sam Kerr is more important than we think or if it's just two bad games or what's going on. But the result of that is the table is tight. And I can't remember a time where we've had the table this tight, one through seven. Usually we kind of know by the middle of July or sooner who's going to be in the playoffs. And I think you can safely say that any of those seven teams – that's everyone besides Orlando and Sky Blue has um, a case to be made for making it and a case to be made for missing it. And that should make things really a lot of fun, especially as we start to get the better players back in another six, seven weeks. Yes, because the last two seasons we've been, I guess you would say, spoiled in a way that North Carolina took off kind of like Seattle did in 2014 and 2015 so far ahead. They're like, okay, that one spot set. So it's really these other teams fighting for those three spots. And it's all over the place. I'm not one of these, hey, it's boring when a team dominates. I think it's been marvelous what the courage have done the last couple of seasons. But I also think it's fun when it's completely up for grabs. And I think there's a team in first place right now in Washington who is a fantastic story so far and how well they've played. They've already got more wins, more goals, more of almost everything than they did in 2018 for the entire season. But it's also probably unrealistic that they're going to stay there. The question is, can they get far enough so that when things start to go a little bit south, they can still hang on and get into the playoffs. But they're fun to watch. They really did a good job in the draft. And their coach seems to know what he's doing so far. And this is the longest season that we've ever had in NWSL in, in terms of pure weeks that the the season mm-hmm. extends uh, from opening day to the final. Um, the good thing about that is we don't have nearly as many midweek matches as we've had in previous seasons. So yeah, we're not dealing one, right? with, yeah, we're not dealing with the fallout of, oh, these teams are constantly traveling. Uh, you know, they had three games in eight days. Uh, there's much less of that. Obviously you have different challenges. You have, absence of World Cup players, and it's not like they all left at the same time. So there's been a really interesting transition, I think, for each team because they they each have different players leaving at different times, and then you throw in those bye weeks, uh, and some teams seem to be adjusting better than others. So I feel like we've seen these last few weeks, we've seen the – Here's the transition into the World Cup break. And now we're coming into, I would say, the official World Cup break, which actually won't last very long when you realize not every team can make it all the way to the World Cup final or even the semifinal. So a certain number of players will actually return to their clubs in in you know less than three weeks. It's, it's, it's hard to believe, but really once the group stage starts, it's just a matter of two weeks for all those to get played. So, yeah, Paul Riley was, I was talking to him on a broadcast call and he was saying that he really is thinking that he might only miss Abby Ursig for a couple of games because they've got a bye week sprinkled in there, I guess, at some point. And right. New Zealand could go out at the group stage. I actually think New Zealand is 
going to get out of the group stage for the first time. We'll see what happens. My prediction. But even round of sixteen, that's just three or four right. days later, right? I've not, I've not been strong, but um, yeah, Ursa could be back pretty soon. And even the U.S. players, you know, we're all kind of sitting here thinking, all right, July seventh is the end of the World Cup, but. USA France June twenty eighth. If that game happens and the U.S. loses, what you know what happens then? I mean, we don't know what happens because it was not a good re-entry last time when things were good. So what will be the re-entry path this time if things don't go so well? But really, nobody knows who's coming back because they haven't right. told us anything. Because there's no communications director, and you're getting me cranky already, Dan. I didn't even say that. I mean, you're right, but I, I didn't even bring that up. I haven't even brought that up to you off air in the last, like, 48 hours. But I, I actually thought a team like the Courage might have been a little – not that you would ever rather play without Abby Ursag or Dabinia. Right. But I actually was curious if maybe that little weird transition where they lost Mewis and Dunn and McDonald but still had Dabinia and – Ursag was a little bit awkward because maybe right. they had planned for the time without all of them. Right. You know, and then the Zerboni factor, again, you would always rather have McCall Zerboni and Casey Short, but it still throws the monkey wrench into the plans that you thought you had. And we all talk about, hey, it must be tough for Zerboni and Short not to be in the World Cup. But what about the players on the Courage and the Red Stars who are like, ooh, McCall's not going to the World Cup. I, I was going to start some games. Now I'm probably right. Not. Right. And, and we don't talk about that as much. Yeah, there, there's there's so much ebb and flow to it. And then you always have the surprise injury. You know, uh, you, you look at what, what Seattle has had to deal with, where right as Lydia Williams left for World Cup duty, Michelle Betos uh, goes out with a season-ending injury. And thankfully, at least they had already signed another keeper, but they had signed Casey Murphy as – a backup, but I mean, that's a great backup yep, to have, but best laid she, plans and she looks pretty good so far. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like, um, we're in a different place than we were in 2015 because there's a lot more promotion of this world cup pre world cup, because of course the success of 2015, uh, you know, yesterday at the airport, I picked up six sports illustrated so I could get, all of the players on the front. And of course I had to tell the cashier, yes, I'm actually buying six of the same magazine. I understand that. Um, you know, so it's great to see all that pre coverage. Um, and, and without getting to the cranky topic of what the, what the league is doing with it, I feel like there's just a better ebb and flow to this season. Like when the schedule came out, I know and a lot of people freaked out that they said it's only a 14 or 12 day break for the world cup. Well, the more I looked at the schedule, the more it made sense to me given bye weeks and how long this season is. So you didn't have as many midweek games. So the number of, of games that players will be available for, including the U S players, even if they do go all the way, will be more than 2015. I I think it's a tough call. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. When you have an odd number of teams, especially low side, it just makes the schedule a mess. I can see your point, but I also think there's something to be said for not having to share the spotlight with these World Cup games that are just going to overwhelm you. And it's probably a little bit easier with the time difference. But I remember 2015, I was not 
watching the opening day of the World Cup, but I got home late night and watched some NWSL, and it was just like, I don't, just don't want to be watching this right now. And I remember watching <laughs> some games when I was in Canada. And, I, you know, I'm NWSL first over watching a national team game or probably even the World Cup, to be honest. It's kind of like my pet thing that I really just enjoy following. But when the World Cup is on, it kind of overwhelms the stage a little bit. That's why the argument about the World Cup final and the Gold Cup final for the men being on the same day and say, well, it's a great day to celebrate soccer. Yeah, fine. You can watch two great finals on the same day. But those games both, especially the World World Cup final... Those are both too big. Those are both way too big. Right. They're supposed to have enough energy to suck the air out of everything else. Like, you don't put the NFL draft the day of the Super Bowl and say, oh, it's a great day to celebrate football. Those are both dominating events, and you don't, you know, and that's, you know, beside the point that this comment that it was a simple error is absurd, but we don't want to get into that. (laughs) That cracked me up, and as many people saw me tweet, I just said, so in other words, you forgot about the Women's World Cup. But I, I do like your point about the time zones, because I think that, makes a difference and that there are absolutely no games going head to head unlike 2015 where I remember being in the booth for the dash while Canada was kicking off against was it New Zealand their first game and just being so annoyed that it's like why why are these going head to head there's no reason for these to go head to head now you might it might keep people from going to the games because you might not be able to watch your game at three o'clock and then be at a game at seven but it, it might get more people to watch on the streams and it might get more people, you know, the, I mean, how are we selling this league? Is it, I mean, are we selling this league on word of mouth at this point? So if you're watching the World Cup with your friends and you say, hey, there's a league game on, why don't you stick around and watch it? Maybe that happens. But well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm selling this league, Dan. I don't think anybody else is, but I'm selling this league. And I'm, you know, I put together a watch party schedule for the Women's World Cup, and I made one that's Houston-specific that has all the Dash watch parties and Dash games on it, too. But I, I think, I, I think I'm I, the only person selling, selling the league. I think if I did a watch party for an NWSL game where I live, it would be about the same as I watch NWSL games now, which would be completely and totally by myself watching the stream. Maybe I'm underselling where I live here, but I don't think there's... <laughs> there's there's a huge market. Well, you need to learn from the keeper how to do guerrilla soccer marketing. But I guess I know. do. Maybe you ought to come up here and, and make it happen. <laughs> I think there's some other, you know, Wosa fans in Long Island who can who can make that happen. But yeah, it's it, it's also a different landscape this time around because one, the roster sizes are larger, and two, the replacement players are not unpaid amateurs, and that's huge. That, that to me is huge because that means there's a greater pool of people who can feasibly make, you know, be that replacement player. Last time around, well, you had to, you know, have mom and dad supporting you or some other support system to be able to play for free for six weeks. Let's not uh, forget, though, how many of those amateur players wound up actually becoming legitimate league players. I think Taylor Camo was an amateur. Oh, Alyssa true. Kleiner had a contract for a little while. Cami Privet, Jen LaPont Cammy got a Privet. contract. Celeste Bouray, I think, was the but Olympic no one should World have Cup. to. No one should have to play for free in a league that we call. No, absolutely, absolutely not. But but I, I but I I did think it was nice. I enjoyed how 
um, much effort, energy those players brought. And and that's you know, that's what I like about the supplemental spots where here are these players where at the beginning of the season, they know they're not going to see a lot of minutes, but they know there is a window for them to get their shot there. You know, that there are, there's a chance for players who didn't go draft, who didn't get drafted to, you know, maybe come in as a trialist, get that NTR contract and, and earn a bigger contract later. Or as, as what happened with Cammy Privet in 2015, she ended up having enough game film that she was able to get a contract in Norway. And look what happened with the Thorns game the other day. You got two goals or two assists from Simone Charlie. And then a goal from Marissa Everett, who could have had a maybe should have had a second goal right. in that game. Yeah. So that and that's the story that you and I both love. And of course, how is that getting out? You know, especially when and I'm going to just have to call this my cranky podcast. Especially when there's this amazing Sports Illustrated issue dedicated mostly to women's soccer, and there's a six-page article about a player too young to play at NWSL instead of any real mention of N.D. Russell, because all of these stories, I think, would be just as compelling, you know, and maybe not need six pages, but that's just me. It's a shame, but I have to say it. I have to say this now. Okay, say it. who, Who from NWSL is contacting Sports Illustrated to say, hey, we heard you have this big soccer edition coming out. How about a story on Player X? <laughs> That's what I mean. I think this is just going to be my cranky episode. So we are, what, uh, basically a few days away from five months without a director of communication for the league? Yeah, and I think I said before, right before opening day that it was professional malpractice and – you know, the league, you know, the whoever's filling in has picked up the slack a little better in the two months since then, but uh, it's just, it, it baffles me. And I'm sorry. Well, to it's not fair for anyone to have time. to pick up the slack. Yeah. Of like, course not. And yeah, of course not. And I, you know, I mean, everyone has had a job at some point or another where you're doing, you know, someone leaves and three people have to pick up their work and you don't do your own job as well. And I'm starting to think that they're not actually out there pounding the pavement for somebody because it can't be that difficult to find a head of communications for women's soccer league, even if you hired somebody on a six month contract to get you through the season. So I'm starting to wonder if the league even plans on filling the position at this point. And so let's just continue our our cranky theme um, because so here we are, First week of June, and this time last year, we knew the, the location of the final by more than a month at, at this point last year. We haven't heard anything about the location of the final. We've heard a couple of rumors about um, games being moved, uh, you know, a, a deal being signed with a, a national broadcaster. Uh, but I just... You know, I, I don't think many of us that follow the league have a lot of faith in, in in that info, given how little we hear in general from the league. And didn't Amanda Duffy say soon? Was that January at the convention? <laughs> I, mean, I haven't spoken to her since then, except yeah. for on the call where she announced that the lifetime deal was over. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know how I feel about the final. I think it should be known and promoted for a year or more. And this will be the latest since 2015 when they sort of changed the format on the fly on us and announced it, 
I don't know, maybe August for an October 1 game in Portland. The only thing I've heard is, well, it's not going to be here. I get, you know, hey, you know, is final going to be in your city? No, no, it's not going to be here. I haven't heard, but it's not going to be here. So nobody wants to acknowledge that it's going to be there. So I don't know. I mean, everyone thinks Utah and North Carolina are the top two candidates, unless you want to go back to Portland again, which I think would set a bad precedent if you did it, even though I heard some really great reviews about the new, how the new place looks. Um, but yeah, we would, you know, people would like to know. And, you know, for the traveling folks, and you and I are crazy, so we're going to be there no matter what. Right. But it's now what, June something or other, and a lot of people spent money to travel to the World Cup or to do things for the World Cup, even if they're not there, and people's schedules book up, and the traveling people are going to give up on that date and do so- and make other plans, either with their time or their money, and you're going to wind up having even less of a presence from the WOSO community at large than you usually do when you plan it ahead of time and don't promote it. And I don't think a lot of people, especially on the league side, understand how important that traveling community is because unless it's in Portland, uh, you know, and and I don't think it's appropriate to put the final in the same city every every year. I don't either. You know, that you can't depend on maybe the home team gets it and that helps us, you know, with with crowds. Right. I mean, that's great. It was great. The final last year was incredible. The energy in that place last year was incredible. But that doesn't mean that just because you have that, that you go there all the time, because then you might as well just play every game in Portland. I mean, well, and, of all the and, teams just go there and play every game there. And if Portland doesn't make the final, it'll still have great attendance, but it would not be the same. Correct. And the, it could the, be a letdown yeah. where you get even less attendance. Right. Right. Um, So I I just feel like it's such an amazing showcase for the league. We've had some incredible finals to watch and you're coming off of what will be, you know, the biggest sporting event in the world that takes place once every four years. So all this media is going on around it and there's just this, this disconnect. Yeah, and, well, and we've we've talked about this before, but I think it it bears repeating. Uh, it's, you know, it's much like some of the other things I've been getting cranky about. You know, on Twitter, there's so much opportunity, so much potential, and it's just being wasted. You know, bullshit, well, bullshit on the on the <laughs> women's soccer doesn't make money. It's like you guys aren't even trying. A um, couple of things on that. <laughs> The friendly at Red Bull Arena was on Sunday a few weeks ago, and there was media day in Manhattan with the national team on Friday, and in between that was a Sky Blue game on Saturday. Now, I fully acknowledge at this point that you might not want to pound your chest and say, hey, we have this pro league, we're playing games at Yersac Field where we haven't drawn 1,500 people yet in, I think, four home games, and the team is a mess, and it could put the spotlight on some things we don't want to spotlight. But as far as I know, now I know a lot of out-of-town people came in for Media Day and the Red Bull Arena game, and I don't recall, I don't know that any of them were contacted by the league, and you know the league in U.S. Soccer, as we know, they're kind of supposed to be partners. I don't know that anybody was contacted to say, "Hey, we got an NWSL game. Anybody want to come out and cover that?" Or did you know? I don't. I wasn't at that game, but I don't know if you know did any of the national team players attend it, support it, and the other thing is the. All the reasons that the final 
is in a neutral site or a predetermined site, I feel like have not been utilized. Like you have it there so that you can plan ahead, so that you can plan events, so that you can sell the game for a long period of time. But if you're not going to announce it, then you might as well just let the higher seed host the game like some people want because nobody's taking advantage of it. Even the games that they had. You remember Orlando? The game was the same day as the Pride Parade, the Gay Pride Parade, not the Orlando Pride Parade. That parade happened in between where I was staying and the stadium, so I walked through it. Uh It It was absolutely immense. And there was zero effort on the part of the league to have a presence there and maybe get people after the parade right. to stroll on over to the stadium. And that attendant, that game, in my opinion, was very poorly attended. Right. So why, you know, I, I get it. We want to know the, the the place, but if you're not doing, if you're not taking advantage of the reasons that you're going in a predetermined place, and why are you bothering to do it? Well, and, and same with the Orlando final. There was a pregame soccer fest or something with Abby Wambach and one other former player. I can't remember the name. can't remember who it was. And I didn't hear about it until the night before when there was a flyer uh, at my hotel. And it's like, I I would have spread the word about this. People, right. and they you also know, had a- people might have flown in earlier for this. Just there's so much potential. They also had an open practice for fans, I think, the day before the game, but they didn't announce that until two days before the game. Yeah, so if you didn't fly in early enough, you missed it. Right, and I don't know if they've done that since then, but that's the sort of thing that can become a staple of the final. You know, are you going to the final? Yes, and I'm darn well going to be there the day before because I love that open practice Right. the day before. You can make that a staple that everybody knows the day before every final. If I'm a ticket holder, whatever it is, or just a random person, even if I'm not going to the game, I can go and watch the team's practice and they can make that into to a big deal. And uh, they decided to announce it. Okay, on one, one last point about the final for us to debate and then and then we'll stop being cranky and stop making people listen to this. Um, do you have a preference between a final on Saturday or Sunday? Ooh, that's a really difficult question. Um, you know, you do it in the fall and you, and Sunday goes up against the NFL. I don't actually think that's the worst thing in the world. Cause I don't think you're actually poaching people from the NFL. I think I prefer it on a Saturday, but I, I, can't tell you why. <laughs> That's just my answer. But what, what what I do think is that it should be they should pick a day of the week and they should stick with it and they should decide if it's a day game or a night game and they should stick with it because those th- are the things that resonate. Because I'm a big believer that even if you aren't watching everything, if you are aware of something going on at the same time all the time then that is a big benefit. So I'm thinking, you know, ideally it would be the same weekend every year. That's probably a little bit too much to ask, but I would say make it a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon or whatever and stick with it unless you absolutely can't do it. But um, what about you, Saturday Saturday or Sunday? I mean, selfishly, I love Saturday because then I get to not, you know, for traveling purposes, but I, I still, I think I prefer Saturday. I'd be cool with Saturday night or Sunday. And the reason I I enjoyed Sunday was because in 2016, it was on a Sunday. 
you had a lot of people come in Thursday or Friday, made it a long weekend. So Saturday, there was actually a window for me to do, obviously, women's soccer conference, my Wosico. Uh, you know, there were other social things that people could arrange. Obviously, you know, the league didn't organize anything. But schedule-wise, it wasn't a flying in the game is immediately next. Um, right. obviously, obviously, the problem with that is if you have if a Sunday game, you might not be able to get back in time back home for for work on on Monday. And I understand that. That's why I think you know maybe Saturday night as opposed to I think Orlando kickoff was four four thirty. Yeah, um, Portland was you know one one thirty. So that that was you know right. really strange. And the, and the other Portland one was Thursday night. So right. Right. So clearly no one was coming in for a long weekend for for that one. But I feel like ironically, if if we're going to make it really, you know, if you're going to move towards making it an event, you have to plan that stuff, too. Ironically, I thought the one in Portland on the Thursday night was the most festive one we've had yet. Maybe maybe I'm underrating last year's because 15 was so different than 14. We were up in Seattle and nobody was there. But, um, yeah, I, but whatever you do, I, th- I just would like to, to stick with it so so people know about it. Because if you have it on a Saturday night and people say, hey, Friday is my day, taking off work Friday, flying in early, going to the open practice, game on Saturday, and then, you know, hopefully you can keep expanding that. But they haven't done it. Yeah, just – we just want to know where. Just tell us where. We'll all book our tell tickets, us. we promise. Or tell us you're not going to tell us where, because we did two years where I had <laughs> hotel rooms booked in six cities, and I think I actually managed never to leave one and have to pay for it without canceling it. And you pay like, you know, twice, twice as much for the flight, but yeah, you know, just yeah. Yeah, just just let us know. Well, Dan, thank you, thank you for um, getting cranky with me. I think I needed to get it out of my system. It's you know, it's. That time once every four years where those of us that really love the game get really excited and really frustrated for all at the same time for about a month. So That's what I'm here for. And since you asked, I do think the U.S. is going to win the World Cup. <laughs> you read my mind. Time to wrap it up with the back four. The 2019 Women's World Cup starts Friday, finally. Be sure to check out KeeperNotes.com for all kinds of fun Women's World Cup links and downloads. And I also highly recommend the Women's World Cup coverage provided by Equalizer Soccer, Guardian, The Athletic, Associated Press has a whole uh, page for it, Pro Soccer USA, etc. And the most important downloads that you can find on keepernotes.com. There is a printable one-page calendar of all Women's World Cup games, including broadcast info, plus an Excel interactive schedule of the tournament where you can enter scores and the group standings will automatically update. So be sure to check out keepernotes.com. All right, if you have been affected by uh, the ticketing snafu uh, and your tickets haven't been resolved, 
be sure to send a tweet to fix the seats WWC. The idea behind this handle is to create a place where supporters can come together and potentially exchange tickets with each other, hopefully resulting in quote unquote family reunification, maybe create additional awareness uh, that the problem needs to be solved. It does sound like FIFA is working on some reseating as many tickets have been pulled out of the system. Um, but I would still tweet your ticketing issue to fix the seats WWC. And of course, this is my favorite time of year for merchandise reasons, because more and more people are getting in on the action. So you can get USA gear from Nike, ussoccer.com, even Target and Old Navy. Um, I've put up a few t-shirt designs at keepernotes.com. But if you're looking for customization, like adding three stars to a men's jersey or getting a specific name number on a jersey, I suggest reaching out to the manager of Soccer for All in Houston. That's the soccer store I used to manage. Just send an email to Sean at SoccerForAll.com and tell him that I sent you. And that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at SoccerForAll.com. And that is the number four in Soccer for All. Um, they can do not only uh, player names, but, uh, you know, whatever name you want, though it does, it, it's not something that can be done overnight. And finally, I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. Uh, my Keeper Notes Almanac for the six seasons, the first six seasons of NWSL. The printed version is here and ready to ship. You can purchase it now at keepernotes.com. You can also purchase the PDF version or you can purchase them together. So hope you enjoy that. Many thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, good news. I won't be going to France for a while, so there will be, uh, more new podcasts. Unlike last summer where I had to run some old podcasts while I was in Moscow and many thanks to everybody spreading the word about this podcast. And as always, big thanks to Sean for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.